Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Wednesday, June 6, 2019. Kicking off the show, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Play that song for a uh, a couple of reasons here. Uh, There is a method to the madness. Uh, One, um, WPLJ, famous New York City uh, at the time, rock and roll station from... uh, Anybody who's around my age, 50 years old, mid-40s, late-40s, early-50s, who grew up in New York certainly knows the call letters WPLJ. Jim Keir, one of their biggest uh, DJs, and a lot of us sort of cut our teeth, if you will, uh, growing up listening to that station. Uh, They were mostly a classic rock format station uh, for the most part, particularly in the early-80s. and uh, certainly, you know, a huge part of, of my life early on growing up and a, a huge part of my education uh, as a music uh, fan, particularly rock and roll. So uh, sad to see them basically uh, shut down. I think they're actually now going to be uh, the call letters, I think, are changing. And uh, the format is now going to be like, uh, I don't know if it's Christian rock or Christian talk show or something like that. But. WPLJ as we knew it is no more. You know, when I when I was a kid, there were uh, you know for for you know what would be by today's standards popular music, right? Uh, there were essentially four or five stations. There's WPLJ and WNEW. WNEW is always a little edgier uh, than WPLJ. They would play more. You know, in the early '80s, the late '70s, early '80s, when the new wave movement started to take form and become a little bit more popular, bands like the Talking Heads and Blondie, even the Clash, you'd hear them on WNEW. You'd never really hear them on WPLJ. PLJ was pretty much uh, strictly uh, classic rock. You know, the Stones, the Who, the Doors, Led Zeppelin, uh, the Kinks. Uh, which you know I loved at that time as well, but I really started to get into you know the B-52s, Blondie, Talking Heads, um, you know the Vapors had that huge hit, Turning Japanese. That was a huge hit, and I think like '81, '82, and uh, the Police were also uh, well represented on on NEW. And so, as luck would have it, one of uh, my dad's good friends, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Goldman. Uh, happened to know a lot of the uh, the DJs at NEW. So he took me there one night after school. I'm going to say I was in sixth or seventh grade, and I got to meet Meg Griffin, who, first of all, has one of the greatest radio voices in the world, but also, uh, particularly back then, happened to be uh, b- a beautiful woman. Uh, was a great DJ, and you know I had a massive crush on her, and so meeting her was, uh, I, I got to meet her. Uh, that was an enormous thrill. And then also, I remember at that time, my favorite band was The Kinks. And so they gave me uh, a studio album of the album Low Budget. 
uh, not, I don't think, one of the more successful uh, offerings from the Kings. But the song Low Budget, the title track, was a good tune. I don't, I actually can't tell you any of the other songs that were on that uh, album. But uh, in any event, so it was PLJ, WNEW, and then you had uh, WLIR, which broadcast out of Long Island. And so in Brooklyn, you could kind of get it. Uh, it was 92.7 on the dial. You heard it 92.3, which was KISS FM, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, also a big favorite of mine. Um, but uh, WLIR was like all alternative all the time. And, and if you listen to LIR, you were cool and hip for sure, right? Because they were playing bands like Depeche Mode and New Order and The Cure and The Smiths way before... You know, those bands were had any mainstream success, right? I mean, it was a small little niche radio station literally in a building, um, you know, at the top floor in, like, I think Garden City, Long Island or something like that. Um, and so, again, it didn't have the strongest signal. You know, I, li- I lived in Brooklyn, which is, you know, as the crow flies, not terribly far from, from Long Island. And so you could get it here and there, but, again, it wasn't great. Um, in fact, I remember now when I was a senior in high school, uh, a girl that I was friends with who was a couple years young, a couple years behind me, she lived, I think, in like Breezy Point, which is like really east Brooklyn, you know, kind of on the border of Queens. And so they used to be able to get LIR better there. And I remember her making me a mixtape, which uh, for those, you know, younger than 30, uh, was this thing that people did where you took the time either through an album or then later on CDs or literally straight off the radio um, and uh, recorded songs and put them together on a cassette. Um, And uh, it was sort of, you know, the ultimate gift in a lot of ways because it it required thought and time. Um, you would think about the songs that uh, were were relevant and, and that the, the person you were giving the mixtape to would enjoy. And it took, you know, time. It took as long as the mixtape was. So I think a lot of them were either 60 minutes or 90 minutes. So if you're making a 90-minute mixtape for somebody, that's 90 minutes of your day that you're devoting uh, essentially to that person and thinking about that person and what they may like. Um I used to make mixtapes all the time, even into my 20s in the early 90s, and I love doing it. And it's actually one of the things I really miss doing. Uh, but in any event, so you had those were the sort of three rock stations. Then you had WBLS 107.5, top of your dial, and 92.3, which was Kiss FM. And those were the quote unquote black music stations. So they played hip hop, funk, R&B, soul. Um, and I also love that music, still do today. And so I used to listen to those stations a lot too. I used to actually, you know, I had a clock radio growing up, which it's hilarious. At the time, seemed like a marvel of technology, right? <laughs> you started out with just, you know, there was just alarm clocks, you know, and then there were digital clocks, alarm clocks. And then, oh my God, there's this thing, a clock radio. It's got a clock and a radio in it all in one. And they were these big clunky things, but they could fit on a nightstand. And I remember my parents got getting me the Sony dream machine one year for Christmas, I think in like sixth grade or something like that. And so I had that thing for years. And so I used to alternate the stations that, you know, so you would set it to what time you want to wake up and you'd wake up to the sound of whatever radio station you had your dial set to. I mean, it was an amazing thing at the time, an amazing piece of technology at the time. So 
Uh, I remember, I want to say probably 14, 15, 16 years old, I had it set to Kiss FM or BLS. I would go back and forth uh, between the two. And then on weekends, so mostly during the week and in the mornings, they would play... You know, like Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle and, um, you know, uh, uh, Phyllis Nelson had this song called I Like You, which was a big hit. You'd hear that almost every morning, it seemed like, when I'd wake up. But then on the weekends, you had the Master Mix Dance Party and the Rap Attack on WBLS and on WKTU, uh, which was also well, then, which then became Kiss. And so you'd have two DJs, Red Alert. On one and Chuck Chill Out on the other. Uh, Red Alert was Kiss. Chuck Chill Out was WBLS, and they would just go for like three hours, nine to midnight, I think it was. And as I got older, what I would do is I would just pop one of those ninety-minute cassette tapes in there, uh, in my and then and and turn and 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 put headphones in so that my parents couldn't hear the music, and then just let that thing go. And if I was like if I was going out at night, and then you'd come back and you'd hear this amazing mix uh of you know the hip-hop music rap songs at the time right back then in the 80s you know it was run dmc and a young ll cool j and dana dane and slick rick and dougie fresh and um krs1 slash criminal minded um you know i'm the fat boys even curtis blow uh i mean there were so so many. I mean, you had some one-hit wonders here and there. Jimmy Spicer, Super Rhymes. I mean, there was, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. And you know, and these guys were sampling, right, and mixing one song into the next, just like you would if you went to, you know, a live party and there was a DJ there cutting and scratching and mixing and doing crossovers. That's what these guys were doing on the radio. It was tremendous. I wish I still had those tapes because they were unbelievable. Uh, you know, for that genre. And then, of course, you know, these guys would mix in, you know, old funk songs and R&B stuff in between rap records as well. It was it was incredible. It really it really was. Um, so in any event, as a uh, salute, if you will, to WPLJ, I played Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper. One, Blue Oyster Cult, local Long Island band. Two, that was that song was in heavy rotation on, on WPLJ. And three. I think it applies to uh, the manager of the New York Mets, Mickey Calloway. Uh, and the opposite is true. He should be fearing the, uh, uh, not literal, but figurative pre, uh, reaper, uh, because he should be out of a job by pretty much first pitch tonight after yet another ridiculous starting pitcher slash bullpen decision that cost the Mets a game. So Saturday night, you had Callaway taking out DeGrom uh, with two outs in the seventh inning with the Mets leading 5-1. And the Mets' bullpen had already imploded and blown uh, a couple of games on the road trip, including a, a five-run lead, sorry, four-run lead uh, to the Dodgers. Um, you'd had Seth Lugo, who uh, is, you know, based on how bad the Mets' bullpen is, is considered one of the more reliable relievers. Let me just let me just dispel with this notion right now that Seth Lugo is some sort of eighth inning shutdown, known commodity, lockdown setup guy. He is not. Okay, just because he's not as terrible as Jerry's Familia has been this year, or as Robert Gesellman has been this year, the body, his body of work and his track record, in no way 
indicates that he is a lockdown Ethan and guy. And as evidenced by that, the Mets knew this because they gave Jairus Familia three years and $30 million to be that guy. Unfortunately, he has been horrendous so far this year. Seth Lugo is probably better suited to be a long man slash spot starter and or fifth starter. I mean, this is a guy with a career minor league URA in the fours, okay? He, he again, he is hardly, this is not Dylan Batances at the height of Dylan Batances' powers, okay, to use a Yankee analogy, right? He is not, he has, he's not even close to that. So all these people, including, by the way, unfortunately, Gary Cohen, you know, oh, well, Lugo is, is as reliable as they come. No, he's not. He's okay. He's okay. He's had some decent performances, and he's had some not-so-good performances. And by the way, being okay on bad teams, not the same as being asked to be a lockdown reliever on a team that's supposedly supposed to be contending. Two very different things. So let's just get rid of that idiocy off right now. Okay? Right? So on Saturday night, he takes the Grom out. He brings in Familia to get the last out of the seventh inning, which he does. Then he brings Familia out to start the eighth. Familia has shown all year, by the way, that he cannot pitch multiple innings. Even though it was just one out, he has been awful at it this year. Been terrible. So if you wanted to go to Familia in the eighth there, then you bring in somebody else to try to just get that one out in the seventh. He didn't do that. Brings Familia out for the eighth. Familia, of course, immediately hits the leadoff batter, gives up a hit. Then he brings in Gesellman, who's been, A, again, very spotty, very inconsistent, and B, had been used a ton and then even after the game, Callaway admitted he didn't really want to bring him in, but he brought him in, and of course he gives up a three-run homer, flushes away the game. Then he brings in Diaz, the closer, who gets four outs, but all after now the game has been tied. What are you doing? Why would you not bring your closer in when you still have a chance to win the game? When you still have the lead? It's absurd. If you're going to use him for four outs, which he ended up doing... You do it sooner rather than later. It's amazing how clueless a former pitching coach is. So, And DeGrom, by the way, was furious that he took him out of the game. And Callaway claimed it was because he had some hip issue. He got a cramp. DeGrom is fine. DeGrom is furious. I mean, he was rolling along. Six and two-thirds, one run, four hits, nine strikeouts. So the Mets lost that game. Then you go to last night. Mets losing 2-1, sorry, 2-0. Alonzo hits a home run to get him back in the game at 2-1. Uh, J.D. Davis hits a single. Wilson Ramos, who's been red hot lately, smokes a home run off Belm Garner. Mets up 3-2. Top of the seventh. So that was in the bottom of the sixth. Top of the seventh. Now it's time for Noah Syndergaard to be the Noah Syndergaard from last year. And two years before that, because the year before he missed all the most of the season, and give the Mets a shutdown inning. They need it in the worst way. He's got to go at least seven. You have to know that. With the bullpen struggles and no real reliable option to even get to Diaz, and we talked about how Diaz has been good but not great this year, hardly the lockdown reliever he was last year. Look, Diaz last year had a whip of under 
not .9. Whip being walks and hits per nine innings. Anything under at one is fantastic. So anything under one is off the charts good. He was under .9 last year. That's how good he was. Now you expected there to be some sort of regression, if you will, from last year to this year. I mean, the guy had 57 saves, and his numbers were off the charts, as I said, you know, whip included. But you figured maybe a whip of one and some, somewhere in the 40-something save range. Well, his whip this year has been 1.2. Not very good. It's not terrible, but it's not great. Certainly not nothing approaching last year. But you've got to figure out a way in last night's game to get to Diaz. And so Syndergaard's got to go at least seven innings, if not eight. So the first batter of the inning, Pedro Sandoval hits a ground ball up the first baseline. Alonzo gets a nice, does a nice job getting over there, fields it, but the ball rolls up kind of in the heel of his glove. He's not able to find it. I don't know if Syndergaard got off the mound quick enough in time anyway, although Sandoval obviously doesn't run that well. He's a big dude. So what easily could have been an out, is my point, is now rolled the base hit. But he then dispenses of the Joe Panic easily, strikes him out, and then gets, uh, I think, Brandon Belt on a, a, a nothing fly ball to the shallow center field. So my point is, nobody hit Syndergaard hard. He'd shown zero signs of tiring. He, had, he was at 102 pitches. The only time he got in trouble in the whole game is when he had walk issues. And even the RBI hits he gave up were not hard. I mean, the Giants were, first of all, the Giants have one of the worst lineups in baseball. And they weren't exactly hitting, knocking Syndergaard around. There was no, the eye test told you that Syndergaard was fine, and there was zero reason to take him out of the game. Zero. Except here comes that dope Mickey Calloway for Seth Lugo. Seth Lugo, of course, immediately gives up two hits and gets dumb lucky. That after gives up a two-run double of Brandon Belt. So it wasn't Belt who hit the, the fly ball. I forget who it was. Um, actually, it wasn't a fly ball. It was a weak grounder to second. And the Mets tried to... Uh, Alonzo, instead of going 3-6-3, got the lead run at second. That's right. Sorry. It was Yastrzemski hit a ground ball to second base. No, sorry, to first base. Alonzo threw to short slash second base to get the lead runner. That's right. And then they didn't turn the double play. Uh, they didn't have a chance to because the ball was not hit that hard. That's what it was. Okay. Sorry. Let me level set. So in, in any event, he's got the, the Yastrzemski, and yes, the name sounds familiar. I believe he's the grandson or grandnephew of the great Carl Yastrzemski, Hall of Famer from the Red Sox. Um, so, yes. He strike out, weak ground, and two weak ground balls. That's what Syndergaard had given up that inning. Here comes Callaway to take him out for Seth Lugo. Lugo gives up back-to-back hits, including a double off the wall by Brandon Belt. Mets uh, happen to throw out uh, whoever was on first base after the, the – I forget. So the game stays tied. Easily could have been 4-3, but the game stays tied. The run goes to Syndergaard. So if you look in the box score, you say, oh, Lugo went, pitched an inning and a third, gave up no runs. He had a good – no, he was awful. Lost the, the game was lost right then and there. And then, of course, the Mets – then he brings in Gassel, then he brings in Diaz to pitch the – and then, then, then Lugo goes out and pitches the eighth, manages to squeak by without giving up any runs. Of course, the Mets now weakly go down offensively. 
Um, it's a horrendous lineup the Mets are running out there right now. And, uh, I mean, we'll get to that in a second. So Diaz gives him a scoreless ninth, gives up a hit, but gives, gives him a scoreless ninth, at least strikes out the side around a base hit. Or no, was it a walk? I believe it was a walk. And uh, then Gisellman comes out and completely is awful for the 10th inning because it's a leadoff hit. Then he walks the next guy. Then he throws a wild pitch. Then he gives up a double. Uh, then he comes out of the game. Then they bring in Hector Santiago. He sprinkles some more gasoline on the fire. Next thing you know, the Giants have scored six runs. team can barely score nine runs in a week, and they've scored nine runs in a game and six runs in an inning. And with the Mets in desperate need of a win. Thanks, Mickey Calloway. And after the game, he goes, oh, that's probably one of the... And you could see Syndergaard was livid when Callaway came to get him. And Callaway didn't even give him Callaway didn't give him the benefit of the doubt, didn't even give him the opportunity to make the case to stay in the game. He had already made his decision. And all you analytics freaks out there, that's good. You know what one of Mickey Callaway's moronic excuses were for taking well, we felt that uh, that uh, Lugo might control the running game a little bit better. Oh, really? I, I was unaware Ricky Henderson was the runner on first base for the Giants. I mean, stop it. But I'm sure that's what the analytics told him. I mean, Evan Longoria was the hitter. Evan Longoria, yeah, he was good about five years ago. He was 3-for-12 with five strikeouts career against Syndergaard. I mean, it, it was beyond idiotic. And just before the game... In his press conference, Callaway said, look, our starting pitchers have to carry us. Well, if you know that, and you said that, and now you've got an opportunity to let that happen, what are you doing taking Syndergaard out of the game there? This isn't Jason Vargas. It's absurd. It defies all logic. And how he's done it, he's done it twice in a span of about five days. I mean, look, Mickey Callaway seems like a nice enough guy. He's just so obviously overmatched. It's not even to be believed. Look, the guy demands zero accountability from his players, right? Doesn't discipline anybody for anything. And I understand that might be an epidemic around Major League Baseball. Guess what? The Mets don't get to do that. With all the nonsense that has gone on with this franchise in the last, call it 15 years, or really, you know, ever since really the Wilpons wrested control away from Nelson Doubleday and have turned into a laughing stock of an organization. The Mets don't get to, you know, remember, Willie Randolph came in here and tried to clean things up, and he did for one year. And then the players started complaining, going behind his back to Omar Minaya, then the general manager of the team, and the owners let it happen, and the whole thing became a disaster. And ever since then, that's been the culture with the Mets. It's a culture of losing. There is no accountability here whatsoever. Oh, Thomas Nido, you don't run hard from third base to home and you cost the Mets a run? No big deal. You'll still be back in the lineup the next day. The guy should have been sent down to AAA that night. He's a 190 hitter. Oh, Robinson Cano, you don't feel like running hard to first base? We'll make up ridiculous excuses for you. And then when the whole world makes fun of you, we'll come up with some lame punishment, so to speak, and sit him. And then even Cano goes, well, no, I, this was a scheduled off day anyway. I mean, it's embarrassing. 
It is embarrassing. And what's so galling to the Met fan is that the model franchise of how to do things the right way resides in your same city. Not far. You don't have to look very far to watch, to look and see what a real team and how a real franchise operates in the New York Yankees. Look, the older I get, the less I hate the Yankees, the more I just admire how they operate. And look, I, I, I'll get it. I, I get it. The, 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 the arrogance of the Yankee, and, and, and particularly the Yankee fan, and not all Yankee fans. Listen, some of my, my, my best friends in the world are Yankees fans, a lot of them. But, you know, when you used to listen to sports talk, if you, you know, as I, I used to listen to sports talk radio a lot. You get a lot of knuckleheads calling in, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of fun, though. It was back and forth, Mets, Yankees, early 2000s, kind of when it started, late 90s, right? When, you know, interleague play started in, what, 97? The Mets won that first game with Dave Malicki throwing a complete game shutout, you know. You had the Piazza Clemens battles, uh... You know, they had the Randy Johnson versus, uh, what was it, Deku Kim. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff that happened. You had Matt Franco with the big hit off Mariano Rivera, Saturday afternoon game in 99. I was at that game. But now I just admire the Yankees. I don't hate them. Why hate them? They do everything right. The Mets do everything wrong. Everything. So there's no reason why Callaway should still be the manager. None. He instills no discipline. There's no accountability. And his in-game tactical decisions are laughably bad. And this guy was a pitching coach. It's supposed to be his, supposed to be his lane, so to speak. It's supposed to be his wheelhouse. And he's horrendous at it. Now listen, to be fair... Not his fault that Jerry's Familia has decided he forgot how to pitch. I mean, I think most Mets fans were happy with that signing. But he's been terrible. No other way around it. He's been awful. But Callaway certainly exacerbates the situation with these idiotic decisions. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with some more Major League Baseball right after this. back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports, taking us out of the break. Children's Story by Slick Rick. Figured apropos after I gave my little uh, soliloquy there at the start of the show about uh, my favorite radio stations here in New York City. That one was certainly well represented back in the 80s. All right. In any event, let's take a trip around Major League Baseball. And um, look, we just we just praised the Yankees. Eh, whatever. They had a loss last night to the Blue Jays. I mean, again, look, th- th- this is what Tanaka is, right? He's he's a pretty good pitcher. He can step up in a big spot for you, and then he also has clunkers last like last night. Um, you know, and look, I, I understand. You know, I hear David Cohn moaning and groaning about the strike zone. Uh, I mean, see that that's where the non-Yankee fan starts to get gets annoyed with the Yankees, right? Is I got to hear David Cohn making excuses and moaning and groaning about the strike zone from the home plate umpire. And that's why, you know, Tanaka had that bad inning. I mean, look, he wasn't horrible last night. Six innings, four runs. I mean, his ERA is in the mid threes. I mean, that's, look, 
Again, he can occasionally step up and give you a dominant performance. He'll also throw in some clunkers along the way. I mean, Tanaka's probably a solid third or fourth starter now, which with the Yankees' bullpen and that lineup is fine, certainly for the regular season. Now, in the playoffs, it's a different story, facing better teams, better, you know, better lineups. Um... But certainly in the regular season, I mean, we talked about it before. I mean, there, there are so many wretched teams in baseball. Uh, Tanaka's going to be fine. I mean, that's not an issue. Um, you know, the, here's the good news if you're a Yankees fan. First of all, obviously, they've been on a, on a massive streak here, right? What's their record now? Even after last night's loss, they're 38-21 and 21 and in first place. But... You know, if you look at the Yankees and you look at guys like, you know, Gio Urshela and, um, you know, Thyri or whatever, Tyro Estrada, uh, you know, Luke Voigt even, um, you know, Cameron Mabin, you say, well, look, these guys are these guys are playing way over their potential. These guys are going to come crashing back down to earth at some point. They're going to regress to the mean. And that's probably and that and that and that's true. But here's the thing. The Yankees are starting to get healthy now, right? So Didi Gregorius is not far away. Judge is not that far away. They've got Aaron Hicks back already. Clint Frazier, his, his fielding woe, despite his fielding woes, I mean, he hit his 11th home run last night, I believe. You know, he's hitting 273 with 11 home runs and 30 RBIs and not a terribly huge amount of at-bats. Right? They had Sanchez out for a while. He's come back. He's been mashing the ball. LeMahieu, we've talked about. Phenomenal pickup by Cashman. Savvy. Smart. Um, so, you know, look. Yankees are going to be just fine. As I said, Yankees, Red Sox, Rays, all year long. And I understand the Red Sox got off to a terrible start. Then they got hot. Then they sort of hit a little roadblock. Look, they're two games over 500. The Red Sox... Need to get that bullpen straightened out, for sure. But there will be no shortage of relievers on the market. You know, the Mets, by the way, should would, would be wise. Because, listen, let's be honest. The Mets, by the time the trade deadline rolls along, they're going to be done. Way done. Way, way done. Oh, and before I, I get to the, the potential relievers. So if I were the Mets, everybody's for sale. Everybody. The only two guys I would not trade if I were the Mets would be, well, DeGrom, you're not trading because he's got the huge contract. He just re-upped with him. But Alonzo doesn't go anywhere. Jeff McNeil doesn't go anywhere. Literally, everybody else can be had. That includes Rosario, includes Conforto, includes Syndergaard, includes Wheeler. Wheeler's going to be free agent after this year. Can't, by the way, I can't wait till the Mets trade Wheeler and get you know uh, a couple of fungo bats for him. And, and, and then we have to hear about how, oh, well, it was hard to get anything good for him because he's going to be a free agent after this year. Uh-huh. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's happening, Mets fans. Let's get ready for it. But Wheeler can go. Max can go. Syndergaard, they all can go. I mean, assuming you get things, some, some assets back for them, which Brody Van Wagenen, of course, so far hasn't shown there's no, there's no reason to believe he knows what the hell he's doing. This Cano-Diaz trade is beyond disastrous. Horrendous. But, again, the Mets are going to be far out of contention by the time the trade deadline rolls around. 
I'd say about 15 games out of first place probably by then is probably a good a good number. Um, and but I'm sure they won't trade anybody of significance. You know, they'll probably maybe see if they could trade a Wilson Ramos to a team that needs a good hitting catcher because he's only got two. You know, he's only got another year left. Maybe thankfully you could dump Todd Frazier, although I doubt it. But maybe if a team has an injury and has a desperate need for a veteran righty bat, you could trade him. You know, Nimmo, I, listen, I love Nimmo. I'm, I'm fine keeping him. But this, unfortunately, is turning into it looks like a lost season, both from a performance and an injury standpoint from him. I would keep him, though, actually. It's one guy I would keep because you're going to be selling very low on him anyway if you did trade him this year because he's had a terrible year so far. Uh, you know, Callaway, of course, moving him out of the leadoff spot to me is a big, big reason for uh, his poor season so far. I mean, that's what the guy's born to do. But look, I get it. He hasn't performed that well and he's been hurt, so we'll see. But I would keep him because I love his energy and I love his attitude. And he's got the best eye of anybody on a team. You keep him, you keep Alonzo, you keep McNeil. All three of those guys are grinders. All three of those guys play hard all the time. Alonzo, obviously, after the home run last night, he's got 20 home runs, 45 RBIs. You know, we're in the early June. I mean, he's on pace for 40 homers and 120 RBIs. Mets haven't had a position prospect, you know, a position player that came up through their system do that ever. Ever. Strawberry never hit 40 home runs. Hit 39 twice. You know, Wright had a couple of 30 home run years. You know, that, that 04 to 08 span when he was actually good. That's it. So those guys are the guys you keep. Obviously, you're going to keep DeGrom. And look, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying, you know, dump Syndergaard for nothing, get rid of Mats for nothing. I mean, they're under contract. They're still young. They're talented. But, I mean, if somebody, you know, if the Red Sox are going to give you the, you know, the moon and the stars for one of those two guys, then you do it. But the two guys, to me, that can absolutely go are Rosario and Conforto. Conforto in particular. And look, I'll be the first to admit it. I predicted this guy was going to have a big season. Uh, Michael Conforto is a streaky hitter who can only play left field. The Mets, I don't understand why they keep putting him in right field. He's a horrendous right fielder. Horrendous. He doesn't have the range or the arm to play right field or the instincts. He looks lost out there half the time. He's a decent left fielder. Center field, no. Right field, no. And look, I understand his small sample size is one at bat. But, you know, early in the game last night, Mets get first and second, nobody out. Conforto's up. I understand Bumgarner even, you know, Bumgarner, first of all, is not who Bumgarner used to be. Right? He still can be an effective pitcher, but he's not the dominant force that he was two, three years ago. And there, here comes Conforto up, swings the first pitch. Pops up to the infield. I mean, that's just a terrible approach and a terrible at bat. And later in the game, the next inning, Rosario comes up with runners on first and second and nobody out with a chance to at least move a runner to third with less than two outs. And Rosario swings at the second pitch and hits a fly ball, shallow fly ball to center field. And Rosario's defense, by the way, you can't. There may not be a worse shortstop in Major League Baseball than Rosario. Forget about the, the the spate of errors that he had that he seems to have gotten over. He didn't get to anything. Now I don't know if that's a function of the Mets' supposed crack analytics staff never positioning him right properly, but the Mets are last in Major League Baseball defensive and uh, uh, runs prevented through 
base hits that get through the infield or something along those lines. I know it's a bit of an esoteric statistic or analytic, but basically what it indicates is that the Mets' infield defense is atrocious. And if your infield defense is atrocious, that means your shortstop is atrocious because that's supposed to be the guy that makes the whole thing go. And by the way, Alonzo has not been nearly as bad as advertised at first base. In fact, he's been competent. He's had a couple of hiccups here and there, but for the most part, he's been fine. But Cano don't have any range anymore. He can get to anything. That's Javaria, actually, who's played second in Cano's absence so much better, so much more range. And Frazier is actually decent third baseman. He's a decent fielding third baseman. So Rosario's defense, lousy. And the offense is very spotty still. Now, look, I get it. He's 23, and you hope he eventually develops. I'm just saying, again, somebody's going to give you the moon and the stars for Rosario, trade him. Get him out of here. I don't care. He's not an untouchable. See, this is, what the, this is another thing the Mets love to do. They love to do the, the Lions do, you did this for years too. They like to have these self-anointed or organizational anointed stars. All right, Michael Conforto's a star. No, he's not. The guy had a bunch of meaningless statistics last year. And he's going to do the same thing this year. Right now, when the Mets need him desperately, he's done nothing for them. He's been atrocious. He's like five for his last 40. And same thing with Rosario. Rosario was terrible for about four months last year. And then when the games really didn't mean anything, oh, then all of a sudden Rosario got real hot, started stealing bases. And you're going to get the same thing from both these guys this year. In August, when the Mets are 25 games out of first place, I guarantee Michael Conforto gets on a big hot streak. And same thing with Rosario. Guess what? I don't don't need that. I need it now. Mets need that now. And both of them have been horrendous lately. Seriously, the only guy worth watching on his team, position player-wise right now, is Alonzo. And McNeil now that he's back off the DL. That's it. That's it. All right, J.D. Davis has had a nice little year, and Ramos has been hot lately. Okay. I mean, but there's very little else to recommend this team. Very little. Anyway, so if you're the Red Sox, you know, Shane Green for the Tigers, closer, should be on their radar. Certainly anybody from the Mets bullpen, including Edwin Diaz, by the way. Now, Van Wagner will probably never do that. So Van Wagen will probably never do that because that's his big signature move. And I'm sure he's not going to admit that it was a mistake. And look, again, Diaz hasn't been horrible. It's been okay. Uh, The slider, you know, which was his real wipeout pitch, has not had the same bite that it did last year. Now, he still throws in the high 90s, but, you know, almost everybody throws in the high 90s now. It's not that big a deal. Guys are turning around 97, 98, no problem these days. Plus, the ball is definitely juiced. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, I, look, it, it works. It cuts both ways. I get it. I mean, Tomas Nido hit an opposite field home run a couple weeks ago for the Mets to right center field. It looked like a pop-up. And again, this guy was a 190 hitter with no power. And somehow he hits a bomb to right center field. It's ridiculous. Now, look, I'll take it. It was a Mets fan. All right. But, I mean, the ball's definitely, there's definitely something going on. I mean, pitchers are telling you, you know, the seams are, seem to be not as raised as they used to be, and it's wound super tight. But the Red Sox aren't going away. I, I know they're only two games over 500. Again, it's June 6th. Lots of season left. A lot of things can happen. Trades, injuries, all kinds of stuff. So, 
that that AL East will be interesting to, to, to watch. To, again, those three teams, Tampa, and again, Toronto, the Marcus Stroman watch will be on. Uh, maybe Aaron Sanchez, their other starting pitcher as well. Um, you know, I mean, Tampa is lost four in a row, come back down to earth a little bit here. But again, it's a long season. I mean, the Red Sox are eight games back in a loss. Come the Yankees again. There's a ton of time left. Now, look, this just may not be the Red Sox here. That, that could certainly be the case. But, again, I would not write them off at all. Not even close. In the Central, look, you've got the Twins just killing it lately. 40-19, it'll happen to lose last night to the Indians. The Indians talked about them really struggling, 30-30. and Injuries all over the place there. The rest of that division is laughably bad. Tigers, awful. Royals, awful. And then the Astros now own the best record, 42-20. and Talked about them a lot. Um, they've won five in a row again. They're on a hot streak. The A's kind of threw themselves back in the mix a little bit, I guess, in the wild card mix. They're 500 now. The Rangers somehow are two games over 500. Mm, I don't think either of those teams have the legs. Look, unfortunately in the American League, I mean, you basically already know that the Astros are going to make the playoffs. Barring, you know, half their team getting hurt, the Twins are going to make the playoffs. And then, you know, the Yankees, Rays, and Red Sox, two of those three teams are making the playoffs. I mean, that, that's, that's what you got. <laughs> and it's June 6th. So, yes, while there's a ton of time left, I mean, really only looking at one, two, three, four, five, maybe six teams. And then the rest are just, you know, playing out the string, trying to act as spoilers. National League's a little different. You know, the NL East, the Phillies and the Braves will likely be battling for that division title. The Nationals have kind of gotten themselves back in the mix a little bit. They've won three in a row. They're 8-2 and two in their last 10. They were losing 5 nothing last night to the horrendous White Sox and came back on 1-9-5. You know, again, the Mets, please. I mean, again, unless they're going to make some major moves unless they're going to get rid of the manager although you know they're just going to probably put Jim Riggleman their bench coach I mean talk about the definition of a retread Jim Riggleman I mean really everybody looking at this guy like he's the savior only because Callaway is that bad again the Mets are serious they already have been in talks with Girardi about taking over this team it's a no-brainer guys one here in the biggest spotlight under the biggest microscope He's won with bad teams with the Yankees, and he's won with good teams with the Yankees. And he won a World Series. And he's smart as a whip. And I don't care if he rubs some people the wrong way. But it'll never happen because the Mets organization is not fully committed to winning, plain and simple. Um, But the real intrigue right now is in the NL Central with the Cubs. The Brewers essentially tied. The Cardinals three games back. They're only a game over five hundred. But, again, the Pirates and the Reds, they're not great, but the Pirates are only three games under 500. Reds only four. You know, look, the Reds have a pretty good lineup. They've got a couple of pitchers that aren't terrible. Same goes for the Pirates. You know, Puig has started to hit now for the Reds. We talked about Josh Bell switch hitting first base from the Pirates having a phenomenal year. Sonny Gray has actually pitched pretty well for the Reds. 
The Iglesias kid is uh, 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 sorry. At shortstop has been great for them. Not kid, but young veteran. You know, still have Joey Votto. It's not what he used to be, but he still is a you know professional hitter. Walks a million times. You know, Reds have a great closer. Pirates have a great closer. I mean, they're not they're not great teams, but they're not total pushovers either. They're not the they're not you know the Marlins. I know the Marlins are on a little streak here, but whatever. They're not the Marlins. They're not the Orioles. They're not the Royals. They're not the Blue Jays. They're not the Tigers. You know, they're they're around maybe 500 teams. So those teams can be a pain in the neck. It'll be interesting to see how the Brewers and Cubs. And Cardinals do against the Pirates and the Reds. That'll probably go a long way to determining who wins that division. And then in the West, look, the Dodgers still continue to roll. Ryu was amazing again last night. He's now up to nine and one. Let's just go to. Let's just take a look at that box score really quickly. Um, his ERA is in the ones. Uh, just give me a quick second. Let me pull up that box score. Got to go to the late games. Dodgers, Diamondbacks, they won 9 nothing. Hunjin Ryu is now 9-1 with a 135 ERA. He's been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, he's been ridiculously good. So far this year, 80 innings, 57 hits, <laughs> 5 walks, 71 strikeouts. His whip is .78. Batting average against 198. 9 and 1, 135 ERA. Right now, that's your Cy Young winner in the National League. So the Dodgers are clearly the class of not only the National League West, but I would say the entire National League. I mean, look, they, they do everything well. The one potential Achilles heel could be the bullpen. But Jansen seems to have righted the ship. They probably could stand to add at least one or two arms to help bolster the setup roles there. But the starting pitching is really good. The lineup is ridiculous. Again, they got guys coming off the bench that would be starters for a lot of teams, including the Mets. Um, and just to pour a little and rub a little salt in the wound. So Jay Bruce, who was part of the you know Cano trade, Right, and I was fine with the Mets trading him. Don't get me wrong. I, I've said the same thing about Jay Bruce. I'm been consistent all the time. Good guy, good player. Just wasn't a great fit here. Um, just recently got traded from the Mariners to the Phillies, and then in his first game, I believe it was his first game with the Phillies, hit uh, two home runs, including a grand slam and a nine six win over the Padres. <laughs> and they beat up on that loudmouth Chris Paddock, the guy who called out Alonzo, Mr. Big Mouth, Big Shot. Let's see. Let me see the box score. I hope this guy. Listen, I, I'm rooting against the Phillies, of course, because I don't like the Phillies because they're in the Mets division. But this Paddock guy, forget he's been on my crosshairs now. Yeah, four and a third, eight hits, six runs, five earned. All right, big mouth. Good for you. So, Jay Bruce. <laughs> grand slam, two home runs, including a grand slam in his first game as a Philly. And they're going to need him now, too, because uh, Andrew McCutcheon done for the year with a torn ACL. And uh, as, uh, uh, what's his name? Odubel Herrera, the center fielder, um, is on the leave list due to a uh, domestic violence investigation. So they're going to need Jay Bruce. 
So he started in left field yesterday, went three for four with six RBIs, two home runs, including a grand slam. With the Phillies, one of the Mets' biggest rivals. I mean, it, the, the, the cosmic karma, it, it's just, it's, it's hilarious. You just have to laugh. I mean, you have to laugh to keep from crying. I mean, Anthony Swarzak, who couldn't get anybody out for the Mets last year when he did pitch, and then was hurt, of course, most of the rest of the year, is now with the Braves and has been effective for them. He was also part of that trade. And now Jay Bruce in his first game with the, with the uh, Phillies does a Babe Ruth impersonation. I, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And, of course, Cano has been ineffective and injured, and Diaz has been good, not great, as the closer. I, I mean, I mean th- ladies and gentlemen, this is being a Mets fan. <laughs> this is it. All right, let's transition now over to the NBA as we try to wrap up the show here. So big game three tonight, Toronto-Golden State. Toronto won the first game. Golden State won the second game. Golden State's all kinds of banged up now, though. No Durant again. Shocker. Not at all, obviously. Um, But now, uh, not that he's a great player, but Kevin Kevin Looney, uh, one of the centers for the Warriors, you know, plays 10, 12, 15 minutes a night. Good energy guy. Gives him rebounding. You know, he's a good glue guy. A young emerging player. He's now done. He, I believe, broke his collarbone. He's out for the rest of the series, obviously. And now, but more importantly for the Warriors, Clay Thompson strained his hamstring in Game Two, and his question is uh, his 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 status for tonight is very much in in question. So if Thompson can't go, you're looking at you know Curry, Draymond Green. You know you're going to need big games from Iguodala. You're going to need big games from Sean Livingston. Maybe Quinn Cook, who made a couple of big threes in game two. Um, put it this way. Toronto wants to win this series. If Klay Thompson doesn't play tonight, Toronto has to win this game. They have to. Now, Golden State can still come back and win from a 2-1 deficit. They're Golden State. They have the pedigree. But Toronto ain't coming back from 2-1, particularly, again, if Klay Thompson doesn't play tonight. Toronto needs to win this game. So it'll be interesting, you know, that's be interesting to see. I mean, Kawhi was really good in game two. He didn't have to be great in game one, but he was great in game two. They still couldn't get over the hump. You know, they got the game to what, within two and had a chance. And look, they, they double-teamed Curry. They almost intercepted the pass, just missed. They managed to swing it around I- Iguodala. I mean, look, Iguodala's wide open. That's the guy you want shooting, the three. I mean, I know he can make them sometimes, but you know, he's also been in a league about a million years now. And, you know, he can make them sometimes, but he can certainly miss. Listen, who do you want shooting the ball, Steph Curry or Andre Iguodala if you're Toronto? Of course, Iguodala. It's not even a question. So, look, give Golden State credit. They managed to just, you know, just by the skin of their teeth, not turn the ball over. And then they found the open man. The guy knocked down a shot. Tip your cap. Toronto did everything right there. They were a hair's breadth away from picking that off and tying the game. So, and if Iguodala misses that, they still have a chance. So I, I would suspect Toronto, again, if Thompson doesn't play, Toronto wins tonight. And then the last little bit of news around the NBA is, so, you know, I've been terrified, right, that the Knicks are going to sign Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in some sort of package deal because, you know, apparently they're BFFs. Um, and, you know, I've been, 
on record from day one that that story came out saying that will be an unmitigated disaster. And Charles Barkley seems to feel the same way, particularly around Kevin Durant, as he came out and said yesterday, you know, Kevin Durant, as we've talked about before, very active on social media. I think it turned out he had some sort of a, uh, an anonymous or a fake or burner Twitter account or something or Instagram. I don't know. Something like that. But he's, he's got rabbit ears when it comes to social media stuff. And, you know, this is when he's been on a great team in Golden State where he's lauded constantly. Imagine what will happen here in New York with the media and all the stuff that goes on here if things don't get off to a good start. And as Barkley pointed out, if he's on social media arguing with teenagers, (laughs) how's he going to deal with the New York media? Chuck, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I'm just telling you, this is such a recipe for disaster. To say nothing of what his health status is. And it's very likely, again, that this is way more than a calf strain. But now, word is, is apparently Kyrie Irving, and look, I think this comes from Stephen A. Smith, the know-nothing carnival barker over there at ESPN. So, you know, uh, basketball is supposed to be the one thing he knows about. He knows nothing about any other sport, by the way, nothing. This is the same clown that told us about, you know, the Derek Johnson-Hunter Henry matchup uh, between the Raiders and the Chargers when, uh, sorry, the Chiefs and Chargers when Derek Johnson was on the Raiders and hurt and Hunter Henry was hurt and out for the year uh, and also then said that um, uh, the Ohio State quarterback uh, was a mobile quarterback, couldn't throw, and it's the exact opposite. Of course, his name is now escaping me. The kid the Redskins just drafted. Anyway, Stephen Smith, Stephen A. Smith doesn't know a whole hell of a lot about sports. Basketball is supposed to be his, his one thing that he's all tapped into, right? Because all the guys in the league love Stephen A. Smith, supposedly. So according to him, Kyrie Irving is all but a done deal going to the Nets, which is if that happens, I'm going to really be upset. Because as you know, I've really grown a, a, an affinity for the Nets, and I don't really quite understand it when they've already got Delangelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie on that team. Um, again, I don't think Kyrie Irving is a type of guy that you want leading your team and being the face of your franchise. He's proven himself to be churlish and uh, immature, perpetually grumpy, um, you know, Again, the Celtics can't wait for him to get the hell out of there. Most of the guys on the team can stand him. And again, talented, no question. One of the top 10 probably all-around best players in the NBA. Talent is undeniable. But, you know, he's a, he's a shoot-first point guard whose defense is, you know, lacking. And... Uh, Again, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. I mean, I, I, listen, I hope Stephen A. Smith is as wrong about this as he is about almost everything else. So, again, take it with a grain of salt. But um, that's the latest coming out is that Kyrie is uh, all but earmarked for the Nets, which, again, I, I find strange. Uh, Sean Marks, their general manager, president, general manager, guy who came over from uh, San Antonio. We've talked about it. I, I think he's smarter than that. I mean, I, I guess I can understand the temptation of having he and D'Angelo Russell, you know, in the backcourt, you know, being similar to a, a Thompson Curry type backcourt, um, you know, uh, a C.J. McCollum, Damian Lillard 
backcourt. You know, the, the, the sport is obviously much more guard-driven now than big-man-driven. I could understand maybe some temptation around that, but, but again, it's not about the, the ability. It's about the other stuff. I wouldn't want that guy anywhere near my organization. All right, that'll do it for today's show. As always, check us out on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also check us out, uh, jamalaboutsports.com. You can also check out the Twitter, which is at jamalaboutsport. There'll be lots of nasty things probably on there about the Mets tonight. <laughs> and the Facebook page is Jamal About Sports. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time, peace out.